The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Mystery of Marriage. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5, 21 through 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sacred City. It's my uh, joy to preach the word of God to you this morning. I'm not going to waste any time because I've got a lot of work to do. I'm going to go ahead and pray. Father, we want to slow our souls down. We know that our schedules are full, that we've probably got our day packed and our things already planned, and we feel pressure, but when there's pressure to do, we can't really respond and receive from you. Intimacy doesn't happen on the run, and we need intimacy this morning. We need to hear your word and your word to make an impact in our soul, and so I pray that you would give us a gift And give us the ability to slow down this morning so we can hear from you. You're speaking. You're going to speak this morning. You have already spoken. Would you let us hear? Father, would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and none of me this morning? Would you produce fruit? Something that I cannot do. Would you do this for your glory and our good? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're just joining us, we spent the past six weeks studying this passage in Ephesians. It is the quintessential passage in the Bible on Christian marriage. The Apostle Paul quoting Jesus, Jesus quoting Genesis 1. So they're all going back to Genesis 1. I don't have time this morning to catch everyone up to speed on what we have learned thus far. But for those of you who have missed a week, you've missed something, you can go find them all online at our website. This morning, I'm going to be expanding upon our topic from last week and drilling down a little deeper into the uniqueness and diversity that is found in our gender and how those gender differences are meant to play out in a Christian marriage. The Apostle Paul, writing about 2,000 years ago, is directly quoting from a much older passage of Scripture from Genesis 2. And when he's building out the structure for a God-glorifying marriage, he builds upon the foundation of creation. So last week we spent some time considering Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and looking at our beginnings as as humanity. Men and women were both created by God to reflect his image to the world. They were both equal in dignity, value, and worth. They were both called to, quote, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth and have dominion. And they are both necessary to accomplish this mission. We saw from the way God created the male and the female in different order and in different fashions that they were equal but not equivalent. They were designed by God with asymmetries and with each of them possessing designed deficits that only the opposite gender could fill. Man was created first out of the dirt to lead 
and initiate. Woman was created second out of Adam's rib to come alongside the man to help him fulfill God's calling upon their life. This calling of helper is in no way a derogatory calling as God himself is called our helper in scripture. When God made Adam, one of the first things he did was usher every single animal in front of him to name. This was indicative of Adam's calling as a man. To name something is to give it an identity. It's saying, this is who you are. This is what you are. Names create identities. It's fascinating as we choose names for our children, how many times their identities line up with their name. My name is Justin, bringer of justice. I'm very passionate about justice myself. You didn't know? It's unique. <clears throat> Adam here was called to bring order out of chaos. This is Adam naming something. This is him taming something wild. This is him going out and accomplishing something out in the world. By naming the Adams, Adam was leading and initiating. But of course, he wasn't meant to do that alone. So he quickly realizes as he's, all the animals are coming before him in pairs that he is without a pair. He is without his complementary other. And God says that is not good. And so God knocks him out, creates a woman for him, a fit helper was the term, to be the other piece to his gender puzzle. So a Christian marriage can only take place when there is this type of diversity, a male and a female. But one of the things that's, quite surprising is when you study the Bible, you actually don't find any lists that say something like, men are like this, women are like this. The Bible does not insist that men and women have certain characteristics or personality traits. It doesn't say men have these gifts and women have these gifts. Rather, when the Bible speaks of male and female and masculinity and femininity, it speaks of this. Listen, actions the one does towards the other. In the husband's action toward his wife, he finds out what it means to be a man. And in the wife's action toward her husband, she finds out what it means to be a woman. Biblical masculinity, therefore, isn't something you learn on a football field or a baseball diamond. Biblical masculinity is learned in relationship as you sacrificially lead and love your wife. Her femininity calls forth your masculinity and your masculinity ignites her womanhood. It's interesting, um, in a book that I read recently, it's called Engendered. The author, Sam Andriad, I don't know how to say his last name, Andriades or something like that. Uh, he, does, he has a ministry to um, same-sex attracted uh, men and female in Greenwich Village in New York City. And these, um, th this ministry, as people come to faith, they are realizing that they feel called by God to pursue the opposite gender and to actually get married, yet they struggle with same-sex attraction. And as they're describing their reality, their inner reality of this gender confusion and sexuality confusion, all the stuff that's going on, what he has found, that they quote in the book this. They said, one of the things we, we, that, in, that brought us into same-sex attraction was our similarities. It was easier as a man, to love a man in some sense. It was easier. I understood what he wanted. I understood him. It's a lot more difficult, actually, being in relationship with a female. But surprisingly, they said, the level of intimacy, because these were same-sex attracted men who had now gotten married to a, a female. They said, but now the level of intimacy is something I've never experienced in all my life with relationships with the same gender. 
And they're discovering the reality of the intergenderedness of humanity that God creates male and God creates female. And there's a level of emotional intimacy that happens when opposites attract, right? It comes together. And that shows us that God gave us gender as a gift for developing our spouse in relationship. The husband is to accept his role to sacrificially lead and initiate. This is his masculine calling to cleanse, nourish, and cherish his wife into Christ's likeness. And the wife takes on her role as sacrificial helper. This is her feminine calling to empower her husband with honor, to love him and help him mature into the man God has called him to be, to send him out in the home and to send him out into the world. This concept, if you're looking for a theological term to hang your hat on, it's called complementarianism. Complementary pairs coming together. Its opposite is called egalitarianism, which basically means male and female are, the, in a sense, they're the same and they have the same roles. And, and in an egalitarian marriage, you know, people often push back on this and say, you're, you're trying to subjugate women. You're just giving men the responsibility. And hopefully, go back and listen to that sermon last week. If you have that, um, that concept, that idea. I answered that kind of protest last week. Here, here's my problem. When you say egalitarian marriage is the best way to do marriage, what you're basically saying is nobody's the head. And so when it's a tie, guess what? The meanest wins. That's what you're saying. Whoever can manipulate the best gets their way. Whoever can be the loudest, the meanest gets their way. Because in the reality, every when you're married, you're you don't think alike, right? This isn't like Stepford Wives and stuff, right? This isn't like you get to create the opposite and he's just, everything you say, they shake their head and say, yeah, no, you're, there's going to be conflict. Well, the reality is when, there's, when you're at a loggerhead, when you're blocked and you, you want this and he wants that or whatever, the opposite, what breaks the tie? Well, in an egalitarian, might makes right. Whoever's willing to, get the, to go the lowest is going to get their way because the other person says, it ain't worth it, fine. Right? Only in a complementarian marriage do we have that already worked out. We can see, we can even see these designed differences in the way the human body is created and participates in sexual intercourse. The man leads and the wife receives. The man sows the wife carries, nurtures, and gives birth. In a book called Brain Sex, Anne Moir, a PhD, uh, says this. I think I have the quote up here, or I should. Men are different from women. She's not a Christian. They are equal only in their common membership of the same species, humankind. To maintain that they are the same in aptitude, skill, or behavior is to build a society based on a biological and scientific lie. The sexes are different because their brains are different. The brain, the chief administrative and emotional organ of life, is differently constructed in men and in women. It processes information in a different way which results in different perceptions, different priorities, different behaviors. In the past 10 years, there has been an explosion of scientific research into what makes the sexes different. Doctors, scientists, psychologists, sociologists, working apart, have produced a body of findings which taken together paints a remarkably consistent picture. And the picture is one of startling sexual asymmetry. We are created differently. Here are some of those marked differences that she talks about. At birth, girls are far more sensitive to touch and sound than boys are. (laughs) Females, their brains light up when jazz plays. The boys, nah. 
girls are more relationally oriented than boys. When given pictures full of people and things, the boys see the things and they talk about the things and the girls see the people. There's a ton of research on this. I don't have time to go into it, but still it seems like it's relatively unknown. Even in the corporate world, if you give an equally competent woman and man the same job and goals, they're going to accomplish those goals in different ways. In a sweeping generalization, women tend to be interdependent and men tend to be independent. Women tend to achieve things in order to nurture and men nurture in order to achieve. Now, this is where things get really interesting. The Bible teaches us, this is just biology confirming what the Bible's already said to us. The Bible teaches us that, listen, there is a maleness that extends past the physical, past biology into the soul. There's also a femaleness that goes past biology into the soul. To say that another way, is there a way that men should go out and towards their wives emotionally and relationally as they do physically in sex? Or is there a way in which the wife needs to receive her husband emotionally and relationally the same way she does physically in sex? The Bible says yes. In our text this morning in Ephesians chapter 5, it's interesting that as he's talking about male headship and female husbands, the head of the wife, females are submitting. She's the body, tells men to love their wives and tells women to respect their husbands. Now, nowhere in the text does it tell men to honor or respect their wives and nowhere in the text does it tell women to love their husbands. Now, why not, right? Do, Do men get a pass on that? Don't worry about honoring her, right? And the women get a pass, don't worry about loving her. No, no, no. The Bible's drawing drawing us into some of our natural differences, some of our specialities. Women are better. They're more tended to love and connect emotionally and relationally. And men need to be called to remember and honor and, and, and to love their wife. The Bible is pointing out some of our common differences We have different gifts and different roles in the marriage. But this is what blows me away. When Paul's writing this text and saying, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love and lead your wives. This was super controversial in this day and age. But not for the reasons that you think. You think it sounds like Paul is saying men are better leaders than the wife. So men lead, women, you just be quiet and submit to your husbands in everything. But that's not what he's saying. In fact, when Paul preaches this, when he writes this in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, this was controversial for the exact opposite reason. In the Greco-Roman culture, women, of course, couldn't vote. A woman's testimony in court wasn't even valid. They had very little rights at all. In fact, women and slaves were on the bottom of societal hierarchy. Listen, men did, nobody called men to love their wives in that day and age. That was unheard of. To love your wife? No, no, no. You see, what the men would do in that day and age right? They would go to cult prostitutes. Ephesus was known for these. They had the temple of Artemis was in the middle of Ephesus. And this, think about, how do you know man makes religion? I'm going to worship today. Really? What what do you do at worship? It involves a lot of pretty women, right? This is man-made religion. Literally, you go and you worship God by having sex with prostitutes, okay? Now, this was okay. Married men, this is expected. This is just what you do to worship God in that culture. 
In fact, it was expected for men to have their wife and then have other people on the side. Marriage was for society. Marriage was for the family. It wasn't about love, respect, or equality at all. The reason we think in our society today that men and women are equal is because of Christianity. We didn't get that that cultural value from anywhere else. The Greco-Roman world said men are superior to women. But Paul speaks into this society and he says, inequality between male and female? What are you talking about? That's not good. Let's go back to creation and talk about it. Men and women are both equal because they're both created imago Dei. That was countercultural. This was going against the cultural stream. Paul would have been called crazy for preaching this. He would have been called a bigot. He would have been called judgmental. He would have been called off his rocker. What do you mean? Look at all the world. Men rule every kingdom. What are you talking about that men and women are equal? And to these men, Paul speaks in and says, no, in the church, men and women, your, hu- your wife, husbands, she is not your property. You can't go with the cultural flow here. You can't treat your wife the way all the other Ephesian guys treat their wife. You can't have her and somebody else on the side. You are called to love her, to lead her by cherishing her above all others. (laughs) When Paul wrote this, the women of Paul's day, when they heard this, when they read, they would have jumped for joy. They would not have submit. They would have went, he's called to cherish, love, nurture, Lead me. Get him, Paul. Get him. (laughs) Now, there's one more point I want to make about this. And it comes from the word husband. In English, obviously, this word comes from the word husbandry. We don't use that very often anymore. But it's helpful in defining what a husband is meant to do. Husbandry is the work of cultivating and caring for any living thing. The husband, in this sense, must lead and initiate like the farmer. The farmer must till the ground. The farmer must sow the seed. The farmer must protect the plants and animals. The farmer must prune and weed and feed. The farmer must plan. The farmer must harvest. If the farmer doesn't take the lead, if he doesn't initiate and take action, nothing gets done. Nothing gets planted. No fruit gets produced. The ground is always full of potential. But without the farmer, it will lie dormant or it will be full of weeds. Now think about it. What's the difference between a forest and a beautiful garden? Well, if you get down to it, the difference is one has a gardener. Forest is full of life, full of weeds, full of vines, but you might not be able to get your way through it. You might not even get into it. It's full of briars and weeds and all kind of stuff. But when you walk through a beautiful garden, See, the the, the forest has the same potential as the garden, but the garden has a gardener who's leading and initiating and pruning. And what happens is as the forest has a gardener, the forest's potential glory is realized. This is the same for husbands. Men, For us to husband our wives well, we must lead. We must take the initiative. We must provide. We must protect. We must 
prune. We must plan for our wives and families to flourish. Listen how the psalmist says this in Psalm 128. If I can get there. Psalm 128. Blessed. I got it up there? Song of Ascents. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord. Now, listen to what Trimper Longman, an Old Testament scholar, says this. Blessed, we don't really like that term very much, but blessed means to enjoy the benefits bestowed on the first humans in the Garden of Eden. So to get that original goodness, to enjoy God and, and enjoy, or to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, to live in that original beauty of a relationship, with God and with others, that's what it means to be blessed. Now look what he says here. Men, pay attention. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. It's calling men to be hard workers. I'm gonna say hard husbands here. Hardworking husbands, providers, protectors, pruners, etc. Look, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed. Oh, God, make it so. And it shall be well with you. Look at this. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. You see the picture of the husband? The husband is the one who beautifies the wife, prunes, protects. Guess what? A vine needs structure, needs something to grow on. It's going to produce fruit, right? A grapevine, it needs a structure to support the production of fruit. Husbands are meant to provide that structure, provide that support. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Our job, protect, provide, take care of them. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Husbands. Somewhere in our culture, we've came to believe that the call to be a husband is nothing more than a call to provide, to go to work and bring home a paycheck. What? A squirrel does that. A squirrel. I'm just getting nuts all day long, bringing them back, storing them. Wow. That's a compelling vision for manhood. I'm a highly evolved squirrel, basically. I've got thumbs, so I can get a lot of... Never mind, I'm not going to go into that. Get another point. Husbands. To be a husband is more than a provider. It's more than bringing in a paycheck to the marriage. Husbands, we are called. Our wives are to flourish in our house. What does it take for your wife to flourish, for your children to flourish? They don't, it doesn't happen on its own. Going to work doesn't happen on its own. We have to get the weeds. We have to provide the support. We have to bring the nourishment. We have to make sure they're getting the right nutrients. It's our job as men who lead well. We must lead. We must take the initiative. We must do this. Husbands, do you know what's going on in your house? Do you know the state of each person's soul? How are they doing? What's their greatest struggle right now? What's their greatest fear? What's their doubts? How's the enemy tempting them? What do they need? Oh, you hear their temptation. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Here's a, here's a scripture. Oh, yeah, son. I've went through that myself. Oh, yeah, honey. Let's talk about that. What do they need? How can you lead, provide, nurture, or protect them? 
Listen, it's, in the evangelical world, it's all the rage for date nights, okay? Just the people, it's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Here's the answer to all your marriage problems, date nights. And you get people together and they go and they watch a movie and they said, we had a date night. Date nights don't do anything. It's meaningful, emotional connection and conversation that does something. So if you go to a movie and you go, whew, I feel pretty good. Date nights, check. Great marriage, check, check. Wrong, wrong. Now, can date nights be meaningful? Absolutely. If you're having an emotional connection and an engaging real deep conversation or an important conversation, or not everyone has to be all serious like that. So gotta be careful about that. Have fun too. You gotta talk about things that matter. But men, have you thought about taking your kids on a date? One of the greatest problems, I think, is treating our kids like a herd. And the, the question is, what do the kids need and not what does Johnny need? What does this child need? Because they're all growing differently. Fathers. Do you read the Bible with your kids? Do you read good books to your children? Fathers, you set the spiritual tone for the house. This is what this is the reality. This is the heavy weight of this. When he says, "Men, you're the head," You're the husband. You're leading no matter what. You're either a good leader or a poor leader or on that spectrum somewhere. I pray if you are a poor leader, none of us are born into this. Many of us didn't see this from our own fathers. We have to learn how to carry weight and take responsibility and lead and initiate with gospel humility. It's hard to do. You have to see it in action and see it in practice before you can actually do it most of the time. I pray that you would get into a relationship with some godly dudes from this church who can help you, who can challenge you, who can encourage you to grow into the godly husband that God desires for you to be. And it's been one of the greatest joys of my life in this church that I've seen so many young men begin to grow into good godly husbands over the past six years as they've embraced the role that God has given them. I have seen dozens of older, more seasoned husbands pick up their godly calling and begin to shepherd and love their wife and family after many years of neglect. I've watched God change the spiritual climate of so many homes in our church. Why? The Lord blesses the man who fears the Lord and walks in his ways. I'm going to say it. The Lord blesses the family through the husband. Now, let me speak to the ladies of our church for a minute. Your call to sacrificial submission to your husband is not a call to leave your brain at the door. It is not a call, I said, to be a Stepford wife. It is not a call to let your husband make all the decisions. It is a call, clear and simple, to respect your husband, to build him up and help him grow into the man God has called him to be. He cannot become that without you. But when a decision needs to be made and you're at odds and it's a tie and you can't come to an agreement, you've tried every logical argument known to man. You know what's the right answer. He knows what's the right answer, but they're both opposite, right? A and B. Sacrificial submission is giving him 
a tie-breaking authority. In its most simple terms, that's what it is. Now listen, as I qualify that, wives, you are not called to submit to an ungodly or foolish husband. If your husband wants to do something sinful, selfish, or stupid, you don't just go along with it. Well, I guess you're the head. Drive us off that cliff. This is why you have men in your missional community. This is one of the reasons community is so important. My husband is being an idiot. Here's what he's trying to do. Would you talk to him? Would you come alongside of him? Or they could say something to me as well. You might be wrong as well. That's why you have elders in this church. So we can hopefully help you make wise decisions. I know one pastor who felt God call him to go to Mexico and a very rough part of Mexico. His wife was completely against it and he just slammed the submission. Submit to me, God's called me the head, we're going. And they spent 10 years in Mexico and it was, it, it was if she wasn't a Christian, he would be divorced for sure. But they spent 10 years in coldness and despondency without relationships, without community. And she really never forgave him for that. Because he made a unilateral decision, we're going, and pressed it. You've got men in your MC, you've got elders, we can step in and call him to repentance, or you both to wisdom. And now listen, here's the other, men. Men, you don't use this submission card for insignificant decisions. She, you want gray walls and she wants blue walls. Listen, honey, God made me the head. I'm leading and initiating. Foolish. This tie-breaking authority should be used extremely rarely. But ladies, here's where your strength is called upon. This is what takes faith. You have got to, in this, you're at a loggerheads, big decision needs to be made. Maybe it's whether to take a job or whether it's to move, right? Something big like that. And you're, you're, you, you can't get your point across. You have got to, you owe it to your husband. What, you, what your femininity is meant to bring into this relationship is you are meant to give him all of your best information, all of your intuition, all of your insight, all of your emotional intelligence. You've got to let him know what route you believe is to be the best. You've got to encourage him to seek the wisdom of his Christian peers and leaders. But when it's time to pull the trigger and make the final decision, you have got to let him make the call. One of my, I'm most influenced by Pastor Tim Keller, and he talks about how 35 years ago, he felt called to leave his comfortable position teaching in a, in a, in a seminary and to go plant in inner city New York City. And they had three boys, and his wife said, oh, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that. Like, absolutely not. And then he goes, okay, he, he, this Tim's personality. He said, okay. And then she goes, oh, no, you're not doing that. You're not putting this call on me. So letting, basically saying, okay, whatever you say, honey, you get the call. And that would, Tim's off the hook. He can go, all right. She said, no, 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 you are the head. You are the leader. You have to make this decision. And through prayer and going back and forth and getting a lot of outside counsel, Tim actually made the decision and it was the right decision and amazing decision. And what she says in in their book they write together, it was the most manly thing Tim has ever done because he lead, he led when his natural disposition was to go, okay, honey, you make the call. 
wives, you have to push him out there to make those decisions, to make the call. This is how you were created to help him lead and initiate. Now, ladies, just so you think that I'm not talking about you taking some kind of second-class role in the marriage. I'm going to go to (laughs) the ideal wife in Scripture. I do this with trepidation. I've actually, I don't think I've ever done this. If you guys have ever been to a women's conference, I'm sure you've heard this. Uh, This is the go-to scripture here. We're going to go to Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. Now, though, ladies, this might be a little overwhelming when you hear this. This is the ideal, okay? This is the ideal. Now, we want you to shoot for it. Hey, we're all about you going for it, but this is the ideal, okay? What it looks like in reality might be a little different. Proverbs 31, verse 10 says this, an excellent wife. Who can find? She's far more precious than jewels. So first off, we're talking about value here, right? This excellent wife is valuable, okay? Let's keep going. The heart of her husband trusts in her. Now, I'll tell you, that that means she honors him. And he says, you know what? She's, she's, She's a rock star. She can help. She's great at helping. She's great at doing her her role in the marriage. Keep going. And he will have no lack of gain. She's bringing a lot of goodness to this marriage. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Now, this part is all cultural, so we'll have to work through it. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She works hard. She's like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She's a good cook. Sounds like she she likes Chinese food and all kind of stuff, right? (laughs) Here we go, right? That's what it sounds like to me, bringing food from afar. I don't know, right? (laughs) It's Thai night. Here we go. She rises while it is yet night. She gets up early. Ooh, I'm going to go past that real quick. (laughs) And provides food for her household and portions for her maidens, people that work for her, her helpers. She She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. This is a real estate transaction. This is a competent woman. This isn't a demure woman isolated to her household and just keep the kids busy for eight hours when dad's gone. She dresses herself with strength. She crossfits. (laughs) Makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She makes things of value, good quality things of value that she can sell. Her lamp does not go out at night. What does that mean? That means she's not a busy body, but she's busy. She works hard. She's up early. She stays up a little bit late. She works hard. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She's talented. She's good at what she does. She opens her hand to the poor. She's generous and reaches out her hands to the needy. She serves. She's just not about her family. She's about blessing others. She's not afraid of snow for her household. She's provided for the coming season. She's prepared. She's, she's been on Facebook Marketplace and got all the clothes for the kids that's coming in the next season. She's swapped and traded with all the other ladies. Took care of the kids. She makes bed coverings for herself. She likes to decorate. She likes to make her home feel beautiful. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. She's got style. 
Her husband is known at the gates when he sits among the elders. So he's a leader. She's not intimidated by his leading. She's killing it in her sphere, and she says, you go kill it in your sphere. When she sees him killing it, she says, I helped him kill it. I'll tell you, there is no way I could do what God's called me to do without my wife. And my wife asked me, are you going to talk about me today? I said, no, but I don't always plan everything I say when I get up here. (laughs) So... I study a lot. I read a lot. I need a lot of quiet time. I, need a, I have a lot of meetings where I meet with people and I counsel with people and I come home emotionally exhausted and I, sometimes she says, well, how was your day? And I say, you don't want to know my day. You don't want to know what I know today, what I walk through today. And she says, sometimes she's like, no, I do. And sometimes she's like, you're right, I don't. I couldn't do what I do without my wife. There's no way. So last week when you guys wrote so many cards and you gave my wife some cards, thank you very much for that. Because it's not just a stereotype. It's a reality that she carries a lot of weight as I carry weight. She is my helper. Let's keep reading. She makes linen guards, sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant, strength and dignity to the clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She's prepared for the future. She opens her mouth with wisdom. I mean, she's well-read. She's studied. She knows how to live rightly in the fear of the Lord. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She teaches. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She's not lazy at all. If you click on her Netflix queue, there's not 10 shows that show 40 hours of watch history. Ooh. That's idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but this woman surpasses them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Woman, this woman, yeah, it's the ideal. This is what a submissive wife looks like. It's not what we think in our mind. There's nothing Stepford about this. So this is how our marriages were meant to flourish. Husbands are called by God to sacrificially lead and husband and wives are called to sacrificially help. But what what do we do when one person stops living out their role, right? What if the husband won't lead? What if the wife won't help? Well, remember from weeks past, this is why marriage is a covenant. It's a promise to keep loving, to keep helping, even when the other person fails or refuses to accept their God-giving role. In fact, it's when the marriage becomes one-sided that the true power and beauty of a Christian marriage can really be seen. Let me give you this quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Four Loves. The husband is the head of the wife just in so far as he is to her what Christ is to the church. He is to love her as Christ loved the church, read on, and to give his life for her, according from Ephesians 5. Listen, this headship then is most fully embodied, not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion. 
pause. What C.S. Lewis is saying there, if you have a husband leading and a wife submitting and it's just, they're just, their marriage is just humming along, that's good, that's great. But actually, if you have a one-sided marriage, that is where the power of the gospel is most truly seen. This is why. But in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion, whose wife receives most and gives least, is most unworthy of him, is in her own mere nature least lovable. See, as Christ sees in the flawed, proud, fanatical, or lukewarm church on earth, the bride who will one day be without spot or wrinkle and labors to produce the latter, so the husband whose headship is Christ-like, and he's allowed no, no other sort, never despairs. So if your spouse is never returning the favor and you're laying your life down, loving and submitting and serving your spouse and you're not getting anything in return, your marriage is actually a better picture of the gospel because that's what Christ's relationship with us is like. He pursues us when we're sinful. He pursues us when we're not interested. He pursues us when we could care less. And he lays down his life for us for disinterested people. I don't need that. I just need a little help. Your death, that's overkill. But Christ loves a dispassionate bride. And he loves us knowing he's going to love us into this perfect future where we're going. In the new heavens and the new earth. Where we're without spot or wrinkle. Now, as I'm closing, I know that there are men and women in here this morning that feel like giving up. You've been living in a one-sided marriage. You've been doing the majority of the loving, the majority of the leading, and you don't know if it's worth it to keep on keeping on, sacrificing for your spouse. And I also know that there's some of you in here that are thinking, I've been doing it wrong for way too long and it's going to cost me too much to change now. She's going to kill me. He's going to run over me. He's going to take advantage of me. There's a lot of fear involved in obeying Jesus and living out the roles he's called us to live. And it's easy for us to think it's not worth the price that I have to pay. I'm going to take you to one more scripture this morning, and that's Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You possess this already if you are a Christian, this mind. Here it is who though Jesus was in the form of God in the Trinity, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, though in the form of God, in the Trinity, took on our flesh, humbled himself, walked among us, felt the pain of, of a broken society, was in relationship with broken people, felt the hurt, felt the squish of his humanity, and then took it even farther, took it to death, humbled himself to death on a cross for us. This is that song we sang today. I think it was maybe the second song. And it said, oh man, it said something about buried in a rich man's tomb, right? Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus is in the tomb. He's dead. And it says Messiah still. Now I want you to think about that. King of kings, Lord of lords, dead in a tomb. To everyone outside, this is why we don't follow Jesus. This is why we don't submit. It could go bad for us. 
Messiah's dead. Verse 9. Therefore. Anytime you see that word, I've said this a lot. You've got to know why it's, what came before it. What's it there for? Because Jesus humbled himself, submitted himself to the Father, even in death. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means in heaven, on earth, and in hell, every single name will one day confess Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Mm, To the glory of God the Father. It was because Jesus was willing to risk it all, to serve us all, to really and truly give up his very life for us on the cross. It was because of that that he was highly exalted. Humiliation, exaltation. It was in his willingness to be made nothing that Jesus was made everything. He was made eternally glorious. Whoa. <clears throat> and we could ask, I have ladies ask all the time, why does he get to lead? Why do I have to submit? I don't know. Why did Jesus have to die? Why didn't the Father? Why didn't the Spirit? I don't know. That was their role. That was what the father planned and what the son submitted to. But Jesus' submission does not diminish his glory. It actually exalts his glory. It displays his glory. It's in his submission that we say he's glorious, he's wonderful, he's good, he's beautiful. His submission enhances his glory, doesn't diminish it at all. And ladies, the same is true for you. And men, in your leadership, the same is true for you. Now, this is a difficult topic to talk about. We all come in with all kind of different experiences from our upbringing and from what we think about culture. And I'm just trying, I'm trying to give us a biblical perspective. Because I believe as the woman takes on her role and as the man takes on his role, we're going to be blessed, like Psalm 128 says. And when our marriages are blessed and our marriages are flourishing and our families are flourishing, our missional communities are going to flourish, our church is going to flourish, and what we're going to see next week is that becomes a theater. That becomes a theater for the world to look in and go, oh, they must have something that I don't have. They must, they must they're, 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 they look at their marriages. Look at how they're flourishing. And it's an avenue for the gospel to move out into our city. Now, I know what I don't want you to have this morning is some, just some insight. I'm praying that the Spirit would do something in you that would reverberate in your soul that would actually bring about change. That you would have a change in thinking, you would have a change in desires, and that you would have a change in actions in your marriage. Men, it's hard to lead but you've been called by God to do it. You've been gifted by God to to do it. So let's do it. Women, you've been called to help. We can't do what we do without you. So let's do it. I'm gonna pray. Father, I pray that you would bring repentance. You know how far we fall short. We can never earn our way into your kingdom. It's a kingdom of grace. 
In a sermon like this, we can very easily see how we don't measure up. I pray that you would bring conviction there, but you would also turn our eyes to the one who did measure up for us, the one who led perfectly, Jesus, and the one who submitted perfectly, Jesus. He's both our leader and our substitute. And we look to him and we say, Father, would you do that in us? You've given us this mind. Would you enable us to accept our role and walk in it and flourish in it and go out into the world in confidence and boldness? And then as we come as Christians this morning to the table, we none of us swagger up here with our perfect record of being a great husband or a great spouse or even a great single person. We come up with sinful hands and we open them to a superior God who puts the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus into our hands and reminds us once again, it's your righteousness that makes us acceptable and not ours. Father, would we receive that gracious meal into our souls this morning as we proclaim the Lord's death till the day that he returns. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.